0: Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the first fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name. And I thought about that verse of scripture as I listened to our choir and uh, orchestra and uh, Linda Richard playing the piano and the organ and how my heart has been blessed already because the way you have led us in our worship of the Lord music and singing is not preparation for worship it is worship and we continue the worship of our Lord as we look into his holy book but I just want to express again my appreciation to Andre and all the people involved in our music ministry for what they do in leading us in our worship of God so if you have your Bibles with you this morning I invite your attention to the book of First Peter, the New Testament book of First Peter, chapter 3. Now, we're going to focus on verse 17, but in order to prepare the way for the message, I want us to begin with at verse 13. I hope you brought your copy of God's Word with you this morning. If you were not able to do so, you should find one in the hymn rack in front of you. It is of the same translation that I read from the New American Standard Translation of the Holy Scriptures. Today's message is another in our series following the word if, I-F, and we're looking at various verses of scripture in the Bible that have the word if in it, and today we're going to be looking at a special subject, the subject of suffering, but suffering in accordance with God's will for our lives, and so if God should will it so that we should suffer, look at it in 1 Peter chapter 3 beginning with verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And yet, with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the things which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So verse 17, for it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. God has a purpose and a plan for every individual, and it includes suffering. Ever since the time of Job, people have asked the question, why do we suffer? If God is good, why must we entertain frustrations and difficulties and sorrows and unbearable pain and the mysterious way of not understanding life and asking the question of why? If God is so good, why does he allow suffering? Well, in the book of 1 Peter, Peter has much to say about suffering. In fact, if you will read the book of 1 Peter, a very short five chapters, you will find the word suffer or suffers or suffering 16 times in these short five chapters. Suffering undeniably exists. It is something that each of us experience at some time or another on the road of life. So in 1 Peter 3:17 Peter is saying if there must be suffering if you're going to suffer it is far better for you to suffer for what is right rather than to suffer for what is wrong Now the Bible gives various reasons as to why we suffer The main reason why we suffer is simply because we're human and it may not be because of anything that you've done or said that was evil or sinful or harmful It's just that you are a human being. And as a human being, you live and we live in a fallen world. And therefore, we're subject to pain and suffering and sin and sorrow and death and dying. It's just part of life, if you may say so. Another reason why we suffer is because perhaps as a penalty for evil things that we have done. If we have sinned, if we have done that which is contrary to the laws of God, then we will pay the consequences for it. Proverbs 5.22 says, An evil man is held captive by his own sins. There are ropes that catch and hold him. So as Jesus said, you commit sin, then you become a slave to sin, and sin will punish you for it. A third reason why is because suffering is a method of correction. In Hebrews twelve six, it says, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So if you go through a difficult time, I'm not saying that it is always the reason for it, but if you are, it might be that there's something in your life that shouldn't be, that is displeasing to the Lord. And if you are a child of the king, then certainly he's not going to allow you to go undisciplined for having done that which is wrong. And so it may be that it is just a means of God correcting you. He, to, for the Lord to allow you as his child to sin and not discipline you for it is not an act of love. We say that to our parents. You know, if you allow your child to just go wild and never correct him, then you don't love that child. If you really love your child, you're going to discipline them. You're going to tell them and help them and encourage them even if you have to spank them or discipline or ground them or whatever method of, of, uh, of discipline you may exercise within reason. Uh, it, it's for their good, not, not because you hate them or despise them or you're just trying to get back at them. No. It's a means of correction. And then another reason we are allowed to suffer is that we might learn to know and do the will of God. That's true. Philippians 3.10, Paul talks about having the fellowship of his suffering, that you can identify with the Lord Jesus when you suffer. And then we suffer for the glory of God in order that people might come to know his grace and to be strengthened. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So you will be persecuted. But when we come to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 17, there's there's some words there that haunt us. And it is those words in verse 17 that says, if God should will it so. And sometimes we use that expression to explain perhaps things that we don't understand. Um, I, I know that in my lifetime and as a pastor in ministry in other places, as well as here, something tragic will happen And people will say, it's the will of God. Well, it may be and it may not be. I think to use that as a blanket statement to cover everything that happens in a tragic way or a hurtful way in life, to say that it is God's will may not necessarily be so. God does not will evil and hateful things upon his people. He will do it, as I've said, to discipline us. But to say that somebody maybe who will commit suicide or, 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 or rape somebody or murder somebody or steal something, to say that's God's will, no, it's not. It's not God's will. I remember one time an individual in another place, another church, another city, not here, uh, whose uh, a tragic thing happened and she kept saying to those who had survived it, it's just God's will, it's God's will. I stopped her. I said this is not God's will for this person to do this or to have done that. I may be judgmental I hope not but I'm trying to realize too that that uh, God can take anything that's good and work it out uh, that's bad and work it out for our good uh, but to say that every bad thing that happens in life is God's will uh, may not necessarily be so you have to take it as each individual situation and case and the circumstances, and it may just be that there are no answers in this life. I remember the couple whose child was taken in infancy, and oftentimes we'll say, why? Why did this happen? And their response was, I waited until we were in the presence of the one who has the answers to begin asking the question." But here we come to this haunting statement that Peter makes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, it is better if God should will it so that you would suffer for having done good rather than to suffer for having done bad or what was wrong. So with that in mind, I want to look at six principles that come out of these verses of Scripture to help us to embrace this statement that Peter makes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if God should will it so. And the first thing that I want to say to you that comes out of the passage in verse 13 is that we should be zealous for what is good. That's what it says in the scriptures. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now the word zealous is translated as eager, Hopefully, we would be eager to do what is good rather than to be eager to do what is evil. Or we would be devoted to what is good. Or another translation says that we are deeply committed to what is good. And another one says if your heart and your soul is committed to doing what is good. And the idea is that of passion, that you burn. And that you're on fire for the Lord and you are willing to do what is right, no matter what the consequences may be. The word translated zealous is the same word in the Bible that is used of zealot. Uh, The word zealot is the name of a political party in the days of Jesus who were committed to overthrowing the Roman government in favor of the establishment of the nation of Israel one of the 12 apostles that Jesus chose was a man by the name of Simon and he is called Simon the Zealot and he was patriotic and passion for the nation of Israel and would have done anything to see the Roman government defeated and Israel as a nation established So he was a zealot. Another word that we could use would be enthusiastic. I mean, he was just consumed and burning with the desire to see the nation of Israel established permanently. And it is the same word that Peter is using about doing what is good. To just be enthusiastic, to be eager, to be committed to seeing that good is done in the world. Now, Jesus set the example. In the book of Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, Luke says, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So Jesus went about doing good. Well, what does that have to do with suffering? They crucified him, didn't they? And you remember on one occasion, Jesus asked them the question, of what sin have I committed of which you accuse me? What have I ever done wrong that you could find me guilty of having done? And they could not answer him. Our Lord was sinless and perfect and lived such a life. And there was nothing of no fault about it. Even Pilate said, he, he, I, I washed my hands of this innocent man. Even Judas, who betrayed him, threw the coins down on the floor of the temple and went out crying, said, I have betrayed innocent blood. Even the, the, the Roman soldier who was there at the cross when Jesus died, giving up the ghost, said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So Jesus was perfect and sinless and went about doing good and yet they nailed him to a cross because of it. And so he was zealous for it. Zealous for it. Now Matthew 5:16 in the beatitudes, Jesus said let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your what? good works. Not just your works, but your good works. You're to let your light, your life Be like a light, openly demonstrating to other people. Not that you're saying, I'm doing this so that people can brag on me and say, oh, what a great person he is. No, no, you're serving the Lord. You're you're pointing people to Jesus, but in doing good, doing good, you're letting your light shine and praise the Lord. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, but that we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. One of the reasons the Lord saved you was so that you could go about in an eager, enthusiastic manner that would bring honor and glory to him and do good things. You remember the parable of the talent or the the parable of the the shepherd gathering the sheep around and and separating the, the goats and the sheep and to the to the goats he would say depart from me because why I was hungry and you didn't feed me I was naked you didn't clothe me I was sick you didn't minister to me. I was in prison, you never came to me. And they said, well, when did we ever see you like this? And he said, "Inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. On the positive side, he did to the sheep. I was sick, you ministered to me. I was in prison, you came to me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me water. In as much as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. And so Jesus says, someday you'll stand before him and you will give an account unto him As to the good works that you have done, not in order to earn your salvation, but because you are. And so Peter begins in verse 13 by reminding us that we should be zealous for what is good. The second thing that we notice is that we should be willing to suffer for righteousness. He goes on in verse 14 to say, but even if you should suffer for what? For the sake of Righteousness. Now, over in the book of Philippians, chapter two and verse fifteen, Paul describes this world as a crooked and perverse generation. Crooked, of course, means it's not straight. And so now the word righteousness in First Peter three thirteen or the fourteen, where it says that for the sake of righteousness, the word righteousness literally means a straight line to just be straight. And so now Peter is saying that we are to live a straight life in a world whose people's lifestyles is crooked. I often wonder how in the world Lot could have been content to live in Sodom and Gomorrah because Sodom and Gomorrah was one of, if not the most perverted civilization in all of history. I think we're working our way in that direction ourselves. Uh, but uh, to, to live in a society that that, Joe, uh, that Lot put up with, and, and, and even when he got ready to, to, to leave, he, he went to, to those that he loved and tried to persuade them to, to, uh, to come out of, of Sodom and Gomorrah because God was going to destroy it. They just laughed at him, just laughed at him because it compromised his lifestyle. He was beginning to conform to their lifestyle rather than to live a straight, a, a straight and narrow way. And now we're living in in a society whose lifestyle and social norms uh, is anything but straight. Uh, It's crooked that that we live in. And so we're living in this kind of society. And and because of that, the world will hate us. Now, now we live right here today and in our society, we, we live in a pretty friendly society in this church and in this city. But you find yourself in a, in a, different, a different community, in a, in a different surrounding, in a different situation. You, you get into a group of people who are non-believers. Even right here in Nacogdoches, there would be people who will despise you and hate you and discriminate against you and say all kinds of accusations falsely against you simply because you are a Christian, simply because you stand for what is right in a crooked society. And yet Peter is saying to us, that in this society we are to be zealous about being good and living good, but they will hate us. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5:10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for what? For the sake of righteousness. Blessed are those who, the people who insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Notice he says, because of righteousness. And because of me. So you you live a righteous life in our society. At some point in time, you're going to be insulted. You're going to be accused. You're going to be persecuted in many ways. Because of the life that you live. And it happens and is happening in our own society. Without having to go back and rehearse old things. But remind you in Second Timothy 3.12, it says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not maybe, but will be. You live in Christ Jesus. You live a life of righteousness. You will be persecuted. Think with me quickly about Hobby Lobby because they refused to uh, provide uh, abortion uh, privileges and insurance in, in the insurance that they provide for, for their employees. They finally went had to go to the court they, they finally eventually won, uh, but it cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars to defend themselves simply because they said it's not right for uh, abortion to take place and we're not going to provide uh, the financial means whereby that can happen because it's against our Christian principles. You think about Chick-fil-A here not too long ago where the CEO of Chick-fil-A, uh, he, he didn't say anti this, he just said we're pro-family. And because of that, the homosexual group just raised up in all kinds of arms and and persecution against them, boycotted them in order to punish them for doing so. The recent Supreme Court decision to redefine marriage to include same-sex marriages and the repercussions that it has and will have for those who are opposed to that kind of a lifestyle. Christians who stand up in favor of a marriage between a man and a woman rather than between a man and a man and a woman and a woman and you say that in our society and you'll be persecuted freedom of speech for me to stand in this pulpit or any pulpit or anywhere and declare that homosexuality is a sin and an abomination of the eyes of God opens me up to suits and persecution and other kinds of forms of hostility and you the same thing not just because I'm a preacher but you do it you'll find out and then for me to preach uh, or speak anywhere and say that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven and nobody else is going to go to heaven but through Christ is to cause all kinds of people to rise up in opposition to that. How dare you be so narrow-minded and bigoted to say that Christ is the only way to heaven? I didn't say that; Jesus did. And I'm just the messenger boy who's conveying that message to the world. But they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll shoot the messenger. And, and just try to destroy the message if they can. And you, you get into a non-believing group of people and say that Jesus Christ is the only way. See, see what happens. You'll be persecuted. But you should take your stand. Peter says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's better that if God so wills it for you to suffer, that you suffer for what's good and right, rather than for what's bad and wrong. But not only because of the life you live, but because of the Lord that you love. In John 15, verses 18 through 21, he talks about how that we are to love the Lord. And Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. So if you, if you stand for the Lord and stand for his name and stand for the Christian lifestyle, Jesus said, they persecuted me. They'll persecute you. But we're still to be willing to suffer for righteousness if God wills it. Number three, we should have a reservation in our hearts for Christ. And by that, I refer to verse 15 where he says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now, the word sanctify means to set apart. And it means that you're to set apart a special place in your heart or in your life for the Lord Jesus. Now, this takes place, as you know, when you were converted. The Holy Spirit, when you trusted Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit, who is Jesus in the Spirit, took up residence in your heart. And if you're a Christian, Jesus lives on the inside of you. And you are to, he has a special place a set aside in your heart, uh, and as he, he resides in you, Paul put it this way your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't live in this building. This building has, has been dedicated to the worship of the Lord and set apart from, the, we're, we're not supposed to have other activities in our facilities, in, especially in this room, other than to worship the Lord. It's been set aside for that purpose well we're to set aside a part in our hearts and in our lives for Christ but notice he says that Jesus as lord Christ as lord Jesus is your savior is he your lord the word lord means uh, i guess for the lack of a better interpretation boss Jesus is the boss of your life he should be in control of your life he sits on the throne of your life he calls the shots he tells you what to do and he says that you are to set aside a place in your heart where your where your reason for existing is that you might please the Lord Jesus and that you might honor him and that that you would be prepared to defend whatever the reason may be that's that's the next idea you should be ready to defend your faith and so Jesus lives on the inside of you. The Bible over and over again talks about Christ dwelling in you, Christ dwelling in you. Uh, but do you just kind of shove him in the back of your life and, and, and you know that he's there and you, you're glad that he's there. But there are other things that, uh, that you just hope he doesn't interfere with. It's just like the illustration that I read on one occasion years ago about giving the keys to your house to the Lord Jesus. Here's the key to the living room, and here, here's the key to the kitchen, and here's the key to the bathroom, but here's a key to... No, you can't have that key. That's the key to the closet. And uh, there are things that i, I got to have one part of my life that's just mine. Jesus, you can have the rest of it, but I want this one. No. That's not allowing Jesus to be the Lord of your life. He is to be the Lord of your life. That means you give him unlimited control of yourself to him. And he is Lord. Not just Savior. But he's Lord. You let him control your thinking. You let him control your mouth. So that what comes out of your mouth is only good things and not hateful and cursing and all those kinds of things. That you give him your lifestyle. Your behavior. Your behavior who you are and what you are, that he is the king of kings and Lord of Lord over your life. And you set him aside in that life. Then, of course, the the third one, or fourth one, is we should be ready to defend our faith because at any given moment, you'll be questioned and asked to take a stand. So in the latter part of verse 15, he says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And the word defense there means it comes from a Greek word from which we get our word, English word, apologist. Now, an apologist is not someone who stands up and apologizes for Jesus. An apologist is someone who debates, uh, who, who talks and discusses. Uh, different, it doesn't have to be a religious thing. It could be anything. An apologist is someone who defends what he believes And so a Christian apologist is someone who defends what he believes about Jesus. And he says, you're to be ready for that. Well, the tragic thing about, I I, I don't know the percentage, but I I would generally just guess that a vast majority of people who call themselves Christians are unprepared to explain what they believe or even why they believe what they believe. And therefore, when they're put in a situation where they are expected to respond to and defend and explain that, they can't do it. And it's because of a lack of... Of studying and scriptures, it's the lack of coming to Sunday school and to worship services and doing a study on your own and so forth and hiding God's word in your heart and memorizing the word of the Lord so that when you are called upon to defend your faith, you're prepared to do so. Have you ever just sat down and, and looked down into the, the things that you believe? And I believe this about Jesus and about salvation and about the church and so forth and so forth, and have scriptures to back it up and memorize those things so that when you are called upon to defend your faith and Explain to people why you believe, what you believe, and so forth, that you're you're prepared to do so. But the tragic, as uh, as I've said, or the vast majority of people just just cannot cannot do that. He says, when you do it, let it be done with gentleness and meekness. The word gentleness or can be translated meekly, uh, or, or the word reverence means to respect. So when, when you're called upon to defend your faith, uh, don't argue in the sense that you're, you, you know, you're fussing and fighting. No, you, you try to explain. Uh, contention and contempt should not be a part of your explanation. Contention is arguing for the sake of arguing to prove that you're correct and they're wrong. Or contempt means that you, you hold them in contempt. I'll show you, you sorry thing, you, you're you not a Baptist, so you're something else, you know. So to argue and, and offend, that, that's, that's not the approach. Peter said be gentle and be respectful and uh, be thorough in what you explain, but do it in a right spirit. Don't turn people off by that explanation. Charles Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll, has written a book on the book of First and Second Peter called Hope Again. And I was reading it this week and I came across a paragraph uh, when he talked about defending your faith. And he said this, and I quote, if you're handling mistreatment or unfairness or suffering for the glory of God, people will ask you questions. Some of the questions will be like this. How do you do it? How do you handle this? How do you live with it? Why is it you haven't lost your joy? What keeps you on your feet? Why haven't you just turned tail and run? Why don't you fight back? These are common questions that will be asked by curious people and will give you an opportunity to give a positive witness and defense of your faith. Number five, we should maintain a pure conscience. Your conscience, inconsistency between your words and your deeds never has been a hallmark of great Christian witnessing. Your, 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 your convictions and your practice must support your profession of faith. You can't say something when in reality you're doing something else. It's just, it, doesn't, it just doesn't add up. Your lifestyle should be inconsistent with what you believe. The translation literally means keep on keeping your conscience clear. Because what you think in your heart and in your mind is what you are. The sixth and final thing is that we should follow the example of Jesus. Notice in verse 18 he says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. So to mention the possibility of Christian su- suffering. Uh, caused Peter to launch into the passion of Christ. The term passion of Christ is a reference to his crucifixion. And he was saying I'm, I feel led to say to you if God so wills it. Uh, that you would suffer for what's doing right rather than wh- what's doing wrong. Caused him to think about Jesus. Look, look at Jesus. What, what did he do for what sin? And we've already looked at, mentioned this a moment ago. For what sin did he commit that caused him to be treated the way he was at Calvary? None whatsoever. No one could find any fault with him. And yet, he says that he died the just for the unjust. The sinless for the sinful. The righteous for the unrighteous. That Jesus was treated in a way that he did not deserve being treated. But he was doing what was right. He was doing what was good. And consequently, he brought glory to the Lord. And Peter is saying, you're to follow Jesus in the example that he has set. That he died for you and was treated unjustly, just for you. And in doing so, notice what he says in verse uh, 18. Christ also died for sins once for all. So he died for all sins, and he died once for all. Jesus is not going to be crucified a second time. When he died the one time, that was all that was needed, uh, all that was necessary in order for you to be saved was for him to become sin for you and and die in your place, and, and when you trust him in repentance of your sin, then you're set free too. So Jesus doesn't have to go back to the cross. He said he died once for all and for all sin so he died for every man every person that's ever been or ever will be born in the world and he died for you he didn't deserve it but he laid down his life voluntarily and in doing so made it possible for us to have access to the father christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to god having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, that he might do what? Bring us to God. Now in the Old Testament days, when Moses and the temple and so forth was in existence, not just anyone could go into the presence of the Lord in the Holy of Holies. We are told that non-Jewish people, even in our Lord's Day, the days of Jesus, in the temple, non-Jewish people could enter only the court of the Gentiles. All Jewish people could enter the court of the women. Only Jewish men could proceed into the court of the Israelites. And only those who were priests could go into the court of the priest. But only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and that only once a year. But you remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross? The Bible says that the veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was rent in two, was torn in two. Notice, not from the bottom to the top, but starting at the top as though the Lord was doing it and ripped it down to the bottom. Thus opening the way that anybody who would come through Jesus Christ could enter into the holy of holies in the rare presence of the Lord God Almighty there's another meaning to this word about entering into the presence of the Lord it has to do with the introductor, the person who introduces you if you were to go to the White House you could not just go up there and open the door and walk in and say hello Mr. President you'd be arrested put behind bars there's just a lot of places in this world that you just can't barge in unannounced but if you had somebody who could take you into the presence of the president or whomever it may be the king or the queen you could walk over in Buckingham Palace and do that with Queen Elizabeth somebody would have to take you in there introduce you this is so-and-so this is so-and-so they're here at your invitation it's whatever the reason same thing is true with Jesus oh listen folks he opened the way that he could take us by the hand one mediator between man and God and man Christ Jesus and he takes us into the presence of the Lord And he says to him, I died for him. I died for her. He's mine. It's my pleasure to introduce him to you. And he brings us into the presence of the Lord. Now, in conclusion, notice in verse 14, he says, Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. The word troubled there means to be disturbed and agitated. There will be people in this world who will disturb you. If you take a stand for the Lord, they will agitate you. They will persecute you. They will. This is the same word that is used over in the New Testament where it talks about the disciples in a boat as they went out into the ocean and this storm came up and it was a fierce storm and they almost drowned. The ship almost sank. But Jesus was in the boat. You remember? So when you're faced with opposition, when you're called upon to give a defense for your faith, it's going to be like a storm. But I think Jesus would say, remember, I'm with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You know, we can draw strength and courage from the words of the Apostle Paul as recorded in Romans 8.18. Listen to this, Romans 8.18. For I consider... That the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is yet to be revealed in us. No matter what persecution, no matter what suffering in life that you may be going through or will go through, is com- nothing, nothing compared to the glory that will be yours when you get to heaven. Just think about it the glory of God. All else will just fade away. Won't matter. Won't matter one hill of a beans, as we say in East Texas. But you'll be in the glory of the Lord Jesus. And we have the assurance that ultimately we will be vindicated by God. If not in this life, then certainly in the life that's to come. Let's bow together. Father, Lord, thank you for being our defense attorney. Thank you for vindicating us. And, and if that were to happen not in this life, we can certainly be assured that it will happen when we stand in your presence. We don't always understand why. We don't live on explanations, do we, Lord? We live on faith. We live on trust of love and to the one that is in control of our lives watching over us, guiding us, giving us strength, preparing us for the days that are to come. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your love and your grace, for your holiness. We pray now, Holy Spirit, that having presented the word as best we can, we trust in your power, that it will find someone's heart in which it can lodge. And if they need to be saved today, they. That they would come under conviction of your spirit, if not already experiencing that conviction, to trust you as Lord and Savior. Or if they are Christians and have never made it public to come forward, that we receive them in a spirit of love, of Christian love, with grace and mercy and rejoice with them in their decision. Maybe others that are faced with some kind of decision, maybe they just need to come and pray. I don't know, Lord, you know their heart. If they're struggling with things, Lord, help them to turn to you for the grace and strength that you alone can provide. May you be honored and glorified because of having done all of this today in your name, I pray. Amen. Brother Andre is going to lead us in our hymn of invitation. And if God's Holy Spirit is speaking to you and leading you to make a decision public today, I'll be here at the front to receive you. Would you stand, please?